0: Hey Not Past It listeners, we've got a special episode for you today. We recorded our first live show at On Air Fest in Brooklyn, a History Domino special. Well, hello On Air Fest. Welcome to Not Past It live. So we're going to play that for you today. We hope you enjoy. All right. Um, First, I am going to bring up our lovely guest. You have heard her work in This American Life, Invisibilia, The Cut. Please join me in welcoming writer and producer B.A. Parker. (laughs) Hello, Hello. Parker, how are you doing this morning? I'm good, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. Is your mic on? I think so. Oh, yeah, there we go. There we go, awesome. All right, let's get the show on the road, shall we? From Gimlet Media, this is not past it, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. I'm Simone Palanen. And, Parker, today we're actually doing one of my favorite types of episodes that we do on the podcast. It is called the historical domino effect. I'm going to tell you a little series of stories from history that are all connected and we will start in one place and land in some other place that is seemingly not connected and very surprising. I'm trusting the process, okay. Today, in particular, we are going to explore how this country has been shaped by what I think is one of the most powerful forces in the world, tween girls. Amen. Yes, tweens are cooler and more influential than you might think, and we are going to look at over 300 years worth of history to prove it. Love it. But first, we're gonna take a quick break, and we're gonna kick off our domino journey Hello again, former tweens, and maybe current tweens. Thanks for sticking around. Let's head back to the live show, shall we? Well, to begin our domino journey, we are going to start at the very beginning with domino number one. We are traveling all the way to the year 1692, to colonial America, and a little town called Salem, Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Maybe you know where we are headed. (laughs) Are you ready? Are you prepared? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, you say that. Great. Perfect. Well, over 300 years ago this week, America's most notorious witch trials began. And to understand how that all went down, we actually need to begin with two tween girls. Like most things start. Like most things. Their names were Elizabeth and Abigail. They were 9 and 11 years old. They were cousins. Um, And, you know, back in colonial times, I think it's safe to say that there was pretty limited stimulation for, you know, young kids. You know, they basically had, like, uh, their Bible to read. Or, you know, uh, these different games. And one in particular that they loved to play was called The Venus Glass. Sort of like uh, the M.A.S.H. of colonial America, if you're familiar with M.A.S.H. Like mansion, apartment. Yeah. I forgot what the S was. Shack Shack or house.
2: house. Oh, that's problematic, but okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, like a predicting your future kind of game. Okay. And the way you would play it is you would take a glass of water... You would crack an egg into it, and then you would try to read into the egg whites to predict your future. Oh, times were hard, okay. (laughs) This was, yeah, the the height of uh, (laughs) entertainment at the time. So, you know, our girls, Elizabeth and Abigail, uh, they decide to play the Venus glass game one day. However, they look into the egg whites and see something rather concerning, because what they read is the shape ...of a coffin. (laughs) Basically, they determine that this means... ...that their future spouse is going to die. Right? So this is kind of some darkness. (laughs) The weirder thing, though, is that in the days and weeks... ...following this, you know, spooky Venus glass discovery... ...the girls start developing these weird symptoms... They start like screaming and convulsing uncontrollably. Um, They start acting like they can fly. They try to run up the walls. Um, Like bizarre behavior even for the average tween, you know?
2: I mean, debatable, but I am. Sure.
0: And soon enough, Other girls of a similar age start developing similar symptoms. They're also, like, screaming uncontrollably, acting weird. So the parents in Salem are like, okay, whoa, what is going on? They hire some doctors to see, uh, you know, what's up. And the doctors basically determine that these young girls are, quote, under an evil hand, a.k.a. they are bewitched. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now this was like a a real concern back in colonial America, like witchcraft was considered to be a very real thing. And so the town is like, you know, really disturbed by this thing. They're like, okay, we need to do something. And they start arresting people. And on February 29th, 1692, 330 years ago this week, the first arrests were made in what would come to be known as the Salem Witch Trials. So three women are arrested on this week, uh, and they were charged with performing witchcraft on the tweens of Salem. And over the coming weeks and months, as symptoms are like starting to spread to other girls in the town, even more people are accused. All in all. 200 people in Salem were accused of witchcraft, which is a lot considering this was only a population of, like, 2,000 people. My math is bad. Is that 10%? Your math is perfect. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and ultimately, you know, 19 or 20 of these people were hanged. The Salem Witch Trials, you know, we think of it as this, like, you know, big thing. They actually only happened over the course of, like, about nine months. Those first arrests happened in February of 1692. The final hanging happened in September of that year. Jesus. Okay. Yeah. Um, While maybe we are more familiar with the Salem Witch Trials, these trials were happening, you know, around colonial America more broadly. And as they were winding down in Salem... They were actually picking up in nearby Virginia. And that takes us to domino number two. The year is 1706. Oh, we jumped. Okay. We jumped. And the place is Pungo, Virginia. Present day Virginia Beach. Yeah, there's no reason you should know that. There's no reason you should know that. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, there, in Pungo, lived a woman by the name of Grace Sherwood, and she was accused of witchcraft by her neighbors. Now, a little bit about Grace. She was a widow, she had three sons, and she was one of Virginia's only uh, female landowners. She must have been a witch. (laughs) Yeah, right? That all adds up. Now, actually, this wasn't the first time that Grace faced, like, witchy accusations. Um, Other neighbors of hers had accused her of this before. They accused her of, like, causing their crops to fail, of causing women to miscarry. I know, dark, right? And then somebody even, like, accused her of transforming into a cat and breaking and entering into their home. Okay. (laughs) So... You know, it might not be so surprising that Grace became a target of these kinds of accusations because according to local legend, she was quite a strong-willed woman. She was also really into herbal healing. Um, She's sort of like depicted in lore as being really friendly with animals and she is said to have been very beautiful. She never remarried after her husband died, so this, this might have been sort of suspicious or perhaps even threatening to the other people in her town. But you know, that was, that was Grace's deal. She certainly uh, exuded a vibe, it seemed. So a
2: pretty quiet girl who lived on a farm by herself was considered a witch because she had opinions. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. <laughs> I mean to me I'm like I hear the description of Grace and I'm like oh that's just like a southern california divorcee who like got into the plant based lifestyle you know what I mean I mean there would be no real housewives <laughs> She could be real housewife of Pungo yeah she sure went up <laughs> um, so anyways the county finally responds to these accusations these charges of witchcraft and they order a trial by ducking, a trial by ducking. Are you familiar with this term of ducking? Wait, is that when they like put the head in water and then pull it out? Very close, very close. So the way that it would work, it happened in a few different ways, but generally what would happen is you would have your hands tied to your feet and then you would be chucked into some body of water. And the sort of logic behind this practice was that water was a pure element and it would reject anything impure. So, you know, if you somehow managed to survive being thrown into the water with your hands tied, people would be like, oh, look, she's impure, the water rejected her, she's a witch. But if you, you know, were not rejected, they would be like, oh, look, she was pure enough for the water, she must have been innocent you would also be dead and drowned at the bottom of a body of water.
2: I mean, this is a lose-lose situation.
0: I mean, in the truest, truest sense. Yes, absolutely. There is no winning. So this is what Grace had to face. So her day of reckoning finally comes. On one July morning, Grace and, you know, a group of onlookers process down a gravel path to the banks of Lynn Haven River for her day of ducking. They tie her up, they throw her into the river, and miraculously, Grace survives. Somehow, she manages to untie herself, she makes it back to the shore. Great for Grace, because she gets to live, but also bad news for Grace, because now everyone presumes that she is a witch.
2: Wait, because she figured out how to untie herself?
0: Yeah, she shouldn't have done that, yeah. Aren't you happy we don't live in colonial America?
2: (laughs) I mean, I like the outfits.
0: That's true. It's sort of coming back, that kind of like, um, you know, conservative chic thing.
2: All of those like prairie dresses at Target.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Perhaps inspired by Grace herself. Anyways, the county uh, then jails Grace after this ducking um, so that she can have a retrial. And we don't really know what happens after this point because... Um, there's no record of a trial. The court records. It's likely they burned in some fires along with other court records from that time. Um, I know, fishy stuff, sus. right? All right. However, we do know that at some point Grace is released from jail, and she lives out the rest of her days on her gorgeous farm. I know, happy well, ending happy for ending. Grace. Great news for Grace. Oh, that's not how I thought that story. Was I going know. On. I'm- <laughs> what were you expecting? Murder. Oh, yeah. I could see that. I could see that. Um, However, even though there is no record of this trial, uh, the story of grace is still alive and well. And in fact, the trial is performed twice a week at America's largest living history museum, like today, like they do this now. Who was that? Well, that actually takes us to our next (laughs) domino. Domino number three. The performance of Grace's Trial takes place twice a week at the prime destination for historical reenactment, Colonial Williamsburg. <laughs> ah! <laughs> now, Colonial Williamsburg is a portion of a real town Williamsburg, Virginia. It's been restored to its 18th century glory. You know, I've been, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, truly a trip. You can go there and, you know, watch a blacksmith give a demonstration. We um, made cider. You can get cider, sure. You can gaze upon the hordes of eighth graders in matching school t-shirts, you know, not paying attention to the U.S. history around them. Uh, it's a fun time. What, uh, what brought you to Colonial Williamsburg? It
2: was a field trip, because I'm from Baltimore, so it wasn't, like, that far. Mm-hmm. But I'm also country enough that, like, when I moved to New York in my 20s, I went to a party and I met a guy. I was like, well, where are you living in? I was like, I live in Williamsburg. And I said, wow, that seems like a really long commute. <laughs> and he was like, no, it's in Brooklyn. I thought he met Virginia, and he, yeah. he walked away. <laughs>
0: Damn. Well, uh, (laughs) too too bad for him. (laughs) So Colonial Williamsburg, you know, as it turns out, the Grace Sherwood trial, this like, you know, reenacted witch trial that they do is one of the most popular attractions. And I think probably in part because as an audience member, you get to act as the jury and actually, you know, give a verdict on uh, whether you think Grace is guilty of being a witch or not. And we heard that crowds tend to lean very heavily to one verdict. Do you have any guesses as to how people tend to feel about Grace?
2: That she's a witch?
0: Yeah. Like, people are like, yep, she's guilty. Except for one time of year, around Halloween, people are actually maybe more reluctant to accuse someone of being a witch. But otherwise, they're like, yeah, lock her up.
2: We, we as a society need to think about some stuff. I know, it's a bit revealing. They're like, "Oh, let's, it's for
0: fun. Let's kill this woman." Yeah. Yeah. OK. So um, it's interesting. Colonial Williamsburg, like, it does all this historical reenactment. There's all of these like, you know, interesting considerations that go into like, how do you perform history for people? I truly feel like we could spend a whole episode on this place. But we do have one final domino to get to. Okay. After the break, we'll meet a woman whose visit to Colonial Williamsburg changed her life. There's a solid chance it changed yours, too. Welcome back whether you're in Williamsburg, Virginia, or Williamsburg, Brooklyn, or another place entirely. Before the break, we knocked down our first three dominoes and landed in Colonial Williamsburg. So let's get back to the dominoes. Domino number four. Now, there is uh, one woman who visited Colonial Williamsburg in 1984, and she was very inspired by her trip. Her name is Pleasant Roland. That is her real actual government name.
2: That's a wonderful name. Yeah,
0: quite pleasant. It is pleasant. And um, she went to visit Colonial Williamsburg with her husband, and she was, like, totally smitten with the place. And she's, like, really into the costumes and the buildings and all these, like, artifacts of daily life kind of on display in this, you know, living history museum. But there's one thing that she's kind of hung up on. So Pleasant, her background, she comes from educational publishing for kids, you know, writing textbooks for kids, that kind of thing. So she's thinking to herself, like, hmm, I wonder how this place could better serve its young visitors. And that gives her an idea for a business. She's like, okay, I'm starting to get this vision. It's a business that's, like, Part publishing, so there's a, you know the books side of it, but it's also going to be a direct to consumer catalog business with maybe some retail stores in the mix. And do you have any idea as to what Pleasant might have launched after her trip?
2: My brain went build a bear. I know that's wrong. Uh, it's like it's like American Girl.
0: It sure is. Yeah! i <laughs> oh, sorry american girl yes pleasant roland is the woman behind american girl at first it was actually not a super popular idea among parents but she went ahead and launched it anyway just in time for christmas of 1986 just two years after her little trip to williamsburg that was fast i know she was really on it we love a hustle do right. you uh do you have a connection to american girl it sounds like you do so my god sister
2: had the Addie doll, mm-hmm. and I would always go to her house and play with it, because my mom said it was too expensive, which it was. And so my mom tried to split the difference, and she used to buy me the Addie books, which I mean, I read, they were cute, but like, I wanted the doll. But um, but like, it's, because it's all historical. So Addie was like a, was she a freed slave who knew how to read? Which alright I mean it's not the best doll for a little black girl to have but um, I would really I had to tell me to let go of my god sister's Addie doll when I would leave the house that and the Josefina doll but Addie was cuter Mm.
0: yeah yeah I feel like we had very similar parents. I, too, was like, can I have this doll? And they were like, here's a book instead. Because Pleasant was trying to make that money. Yeah. I mean, yeah, these were, like, expensive dolls. I remember going, okay, this girl, okay. LAUGHTER Uh, this girl in my class, Olivia, she invited me to a bowling party, and we went to her house afterwards, and she had, like, four American Girl dolls. A flex. Yeah. And I was like, okay, um, I know what class consciousness is now. You know what I mean? Shh. It was a lot. But I was so into it. I, like, subscribed to the magazines. Like, I was fully into American Girl. But never got the dolls. Me either. Which is why. Parker. I am so excited to tell you that you are not our only guest here today. Don't we play We have some other lovely ladies joining us on stage. Could we please bring them out? Yes. Oh my God. Oh my
2: God. You don't understand, like, nine year old Parker is about to grab her and run out the door.
0: Oh. oh. I actually haven't gotten to see the dolls yet, so I'm also seeing them for the first time. I'm like, so precious. Oh, my God. (laughs) They actually launched with three dolls in the very beginning. Molly, Kirsten, Samantha, the OGs. They were all nine-year-old girls from different time periods. So Molly McIntyre... She lives in the fictional town of Jefferson, Illinois, um, in the 1940s, and her life is very shaped by World War II. Then there is Kirsten Larsen. She uh, is a Swedish immigrant living with her family on the Minnesota frontier. Her story takes place in the mid-1800s, and it's very much about America's pioneer era. And then there was Samantha Parkington, who was an orphan, being raised by her wealthy grandmother in Mount Bedford, New York, which is supposed to be like a fictionalized Westchester type of place. Um, Right now, the white dolls are having a fun time. Oh, the, (laughs) the white dolls have a, a lot. Well, they get to go get to Westchester. The All right. They have to live in Westchester with their wealthy grandmothers. Um, Samantha's story takes place at the turn of the 20th century, um, and the Industrial Revolution is what looms large in her story. Now, you mentioned Addie and Josefina. Would you say those were your two favorite characters? Well, they were the brown ones, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tends to work that way, doesn't it?
2: That tends to work out that way. That's how representation works. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. I was also I I had like all the Addie books. I was I was really stuck on Addie. I think she was my favorite for sure. Well, she was the most relatable, I guess, in a historical context. Yeah. Well, for those of you who are not familiar, Addie was the first Black doll. She was introduced in 1993. And I actually got to talk to the author behind the Addie stories. Her name is Connie Porter. She's a writer and a teacher. She wrote all six of the Addie books. And we have a little clip of Connie to tell us a little bit more about Addie. Oh, Connie. Here's Connie. Connie's black!
1: <laughs> Addie's a, a nine-year-old girl when we meet her, and she's living on a small plantation in North Carolina. And she really is someone who's a very bright child, a very inquisitive child, and I think brave would be a way I would describe her, and most of all, I think, hopeful.
0: Addie is a Civil War-era girl. Like Connie said, her story begins on a small plantation in North Carolina, where Addie and her family are enslaved, Um, though pretty early on in her story, she and her mother escape to freedom under the cover of night, uh, and they make their way up to Philadelphia. And that is Addie's story. I know, not quite the uh, rich orphan from Westchester.
2: We can't have it all.
0: Yeah. You know, even though I, I really loved Addie as a kid, I also remember feeling very conflicted, right? Because I was like, okay, why is the one singular black doll in your collection? like slave? Yeah. Yeah. Well,
2: that's the only history that we
0: they allow us to have, some <laughs> I... I really did struggle with this. And, I, you know, I talked um, to Connie about, like, why is this the story, I don't know, of all the stories of black history, like, why is this the one that you are starting with? And they actually, as they were developing these stories, they had considered other time periods. Like, for example, they were looking at the Harlem Renaissance, right? That's hot. I know, right? They still don't have a Harlem Renaissance doll. I'm like, you guys should get, get on that. Get on it. How, so, but anyways, the, the thing that they would run into is they were like, okay, how do you explain the Harlem Renaissance? Okay, you have to explain the Great Migration. How do you explain the Great Migration without explaining slavery? And basically all of the other time periods that they landed on, they sort of all came back to the massive, um, significant way that slavery has shaped American history and black American history. And so they figured, okay, we need to begin with that history.
2: We just had a whole... These, there's a whole immigration story right there with the little blonde girl and nothing about, you know,
0: Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, feel free to take this up with Connie if you want. <laughs> I,
2: I'm just so happy that she was a black lady. I thought it was like an Ezra Jack Keats situation where it was just like an old white person writing historical fiction.
0: I know, at least, you know, in the 90s, they had the wherewithal to hire a black woman to write a little black girl story.
2: We appreciate progress.
0: (laughs) Now, if you remember in the books, even though, you know, it is sort of written for kids, there are like depictions of like some pretty cruel and violent things. And there's one scene in particular that I'm thinking of that I have not been able to get out of my head to this day. Now, just first quickly for some context, this is from early in the series when Addy is working on the plantation and part of her job is to pluck the worms off of tobacco plants. In this scene, Addy has mistakenly missed a few of those worms. She's distracted because her father and brother have just been sold off. The overseer notices that she's missed the worms And I'm actually going to have Connie read that for us. I'm
2: about to be traumatized.
1: Uh, Maybe Maybe. a little. That's all right. He grabbed Addie's wrist in one of his large hands and opened his other hand. Addie saw what he held. Live worms. Worms that Addie had missed. The overseer forced open her mouth and stuffed the still-twisting and wiggling worms inside. Addie began choking. Eat them, the overseer growled. "Chew them up, every last one of them. If you don't, I'll get some more. Addie gagged as the worm's juicy bodies burst in her mouth. That'll teach you to mind your work, the overseer snapped. He shoved her away. Addie crumpled the ground as he turned to leave
0: yeah I mean it's heavy stuff for a nine-year-old to read definitely they definitely don't shy away from showcasing you know the cruelty of slavery of segregation um but they have to play this delicate balancing act, right? They have to somehow figure out how to portray this history, but do it in a way that's still appropriate for, you know, their child audience. And so I talked to Connie a little bit about the choices that they made. So, you know, they, they chose to showcase this, but there are other things that they don't include. Like they don't include the N-word, for example. Mm-hmm. They don't include depictions of sexual assault. But they have the overseer, you know, call her girl in an extremely like patronizing and violent way. Mm -hmm. But I think after all that, I'm still thinking, like, okay, but why is this little black girl the one who's like shouldering all of this trauma in this like fun toy company? Is
2: Molly getting worms?
0: I believe Molly's great challenge was she needed to figure out what Halloween costume she was gonna wear that year. Oh, the choices. I'm so sorry. So I, I asked Connie about this, you know, like, like why is the black character shouldering um, this difficult history?
1: I look at today's environment and people not necessarily wanting history to be told as it is, because it can hurt somebody's feelings or you don't want anybody to feel bad. I'm like, feel bad. There are people who lived this. My mother's grandmother was a slave born in Alabama. It's kind of been really refreshing to find that children are and were far more willing to take on the subject matter than parents.
0: It's interesting to me that Connie is bringing up this idea of like, hey, like this is the history that people dealt with. This is like real shit and we should be talking to our kids about it because it feels like this is a debate that we're continuing to have right now um, I don't know if it's one that you've been following but
2: I oh, mean the um, oversimplification of the idea of critical race theory to the point where you don't want to teach any kind of history that was so white people as problematic sure
0: <laughs> Oh, so... <laughs> so you are so you are familiar I'm, I'm aware <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's it is so um confounding to me this impulse to shield children from these harsher truths like completely full stop i think you know it's one thing to be like let's uh you know engage kids in history in a way that's age appropriate it's another to just completely erase that from their awareness
2: oh for sure like to deny any kind of history is disingenuous but i also say that because i grew up in uh, baltimore which was you know a slave town and full of historical artifacts i did a story about like a traumatizing museum in baltimore called the great blacks and wax museum which has like a a slave ship you can go into and watch women be assaulted but you know it's it's you know for eight-year-olds and stuff Um, And, like, there's a a lynching exhibit in the basement for teenagers to see. Like, there's, like... They encourage you to learn the history no matter how um, unsavory it might be.
0: Yeah. What was that like for you as a kid? Oh, it
2: definitely messes you up a little bit. Uh, But you learn to appreciate it. Like, I mean... I spent my summers on a farm with my grandparents 10 miles away from the plantation that my family was from. And it's still like a historical landmark. Uh, so like the like the history of slavery was always there, which is why I would totally love to see a little black girl hanging out with Langston Hughes uh, and County Cullen Then you know, have to read about her eating worms.
0: Yeah. You know, it, it also makes me think a little bit about like Which kids have the privilege and the luxury to like choose what history they want to engage with? Oh, for sure.
2: Oh, yeah. Like I still get like DMs from certain like white listeners (laughs) who have who have never experienced certain things, and when they listen to stories that I tell about. black experiences from the past like i didn't know
0: yeah i mean it i don't know it, it seems like uh yeah there is a lot of sort of discomfort into exactly how to engage with these darker parts of history i mean you um, just do yeah
2: like you can't like evade it and to try to hide from it uh, does you a disservice because you're going to be stuck repeating the same lines of bigotry and ignorance that we came
0: before. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting that we have ended in this moment of, like tweens engaging with history because we began, you know, over 300 years ago with tweens making history. Uh, That's that's the progress that we look for in America. (laughs) Parker, how do you feel about this journey we have just
2: been on? I feel like I've learned a lot. It was an emotional roller coaster. And now we've reached a part where you may not want to count your American to girl dolls before you put them in the box. Cause Addie's coming
0: to bed style. <laughs> um, we'll tell them we lost one somehow. Well, Parker, thank you so much for joining me. It's been so fun. Such a pleasure. You're welcome back anytime. Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Laura Newcomb. Next week, we're looking back at the notorious B.I.G., 25 years after his death.
1: It's hard for people to understand in 2022 what it was like. But it was jarring to see a celebrity gunned down like that. And so people were really scared and they didn't know what to blame. The rest of
0: our team are producers Sarah Craig and Amy Padula. Our associate producers are Ramoy Phillip and Julie Carley. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Moral Waltz, Andrea B. Scott, Katie Feather, and Zach Stewart-Pontier. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. Sound design and mixing by Hans Dale Shee. Original music by Sax Kicks Av, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Ko, Co, with music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Abby Ruzica. Special thanks to Ellen Peltz, Stephen Seals, Kelly Brennan and Abigail Schumann at Colonial Williamsburg, Susan Jevons at Mattel, the whole team at On Air Fest and to Lydia Polgreen, Dan Behar, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles and Jen Hahn. Follow Not Past It to listen for free exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. Now I'm going to have you give like a more tepid applause. Like you're like, okay, I kind of vibe with it. Maybe three, two, one.